Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. Due to our limited budget, we were unable to secure the compensation Miss Pelosi requested to be on our show. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast dedicated to all of us pipe smokers all around the world. Happy April 3rd. The weather is wonderful outside, and we've got a great show for you tonight. So in pipe parts, I want to talk a little bit about some uh, non-musical famous pipe smokers, because we've lost a few recently. Uh, my guest coming up, Al Franklin, pipe collector, and Al's been all around the world, so you'll have to you'll have to sit back and enjoy this one. Uh, JDRF auction update, mailbag, music, going back to some old music, going back to Dizzy Gillespie, coming up at the end of the show, as well as, not sure if I'm going to do a rant or a rave yet, haven't decided which one I'm going to pull out, but... Uh, Anyway, hope you all had fun on April 1st, April Fool's Day. Is April Fool's Day a big thing around the uh, in, in the rest of the world? Not so sure, but I know here in the uh, good old United States of America, uh, lots of April Fool's jokes were going on. I saw on Facebook where a couple of cigar companies had announced that tobacco had been outlawed and blah de blah de blah Well, you know, the, the one that I did like was Alec Bradley, the cigar company, announced a completely circular Alec Bradley donut cigar. Well, it was fun for April Fools. Uh, We had our own little fun, and if you follow the Pipes Magazine radio show on Facebook, you'll see where we posted on Tuesday that our guest this week would be Nancy Pelosi, who is the uh, uh, U.S. House of Representatives Democratic Minority Leader, former Speaker of the House, and not a real big friend of tobacco. So there's our little April Fool's for you, and we tied it into the beginning of the show there. Uh, anyway, let's get this show going. I got my bourbon, got my coffee. Everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you to Sutliff Tobacco Company, and here we go. This is Internet Radio. I'm not just a pipe smoker. I'm a Meerschaum pipe smoker. All of my pipes come from MeershamStore.com. They've been in business for 50 years, and I can trust that there will be no hassles. Orders are processed and shipped fast, and they have every shape you can imagine, including calabash, claws, dragons, horror, even a sexy series. MeershamStore.com, the most trusted Meersham store for 50 years. Meet Josh. Everyone at SmokingPipes.com holds customers as a high priority. But nobody interacts with him more personally than Josh. He's our professor of pipes, if you will. As a previous professor of history, educating the customer comes easily to him. He loves explaining the history of a particular pipe to a customer or coaching his customer service team. I love to help customers find that perfect piece for their collection. It's my job to make sure there's a smile on the other end of the line. And I'm more than happy to be the one to put it there. And although Josh's job can sometimes be quite demanding, he doesn't mind. He loves his job at SmokingPipes.com. Why? Because I don't just sell pipes, I smoke them. Call us at 1-888-366-0345. That's 1-888-366-0345. Or check us out online at SmokingPipes.com. We are quality. We are experts. We are SmokingPipes.com. Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show. You know, speaking of smokingpipes.com, they were offering a 50% off sale on April 1st on estate cigars. Um, estate cigars, I use them as uh, fertilizer in the flower beds this time of the year. So excited, excited. Spring's coming. It's here. Yay, warm weather. I actually sat outside yesterday and smoked my pipe and uh, did my notes for the show. Anyway, we oftentimes talk about great and famous pipe smokers of the past, and on the show we've tried to feature uh, great uh, musicians that were pipe smokers and a whole whole realm of pipe-smoking musicians. Well, I thought it'd be interesting, we all know, to talk about the real famous ones, but 
when you go back and you look through, especially the past uh, 120 years, there is a lot of statesmen that were famous pipe smokers, and we all know their names. We lost a couple of them recently. Uh, you go back deeper, and what I've noticed is not only is there a lot of actors, but there's a lot of theologians, there's a lot of poets, philosophers that are pipe smokers, and uh, inventors. Inventors seem to be at the top of the list as well. For example, Alexander Graham Bell was a regular pipe smoker. Even some explorers were regular pipe smokers, like uh, Richard Byrd, the American naval officer and explorer, uh, Amundsen, the uh, Norwegian, Roald Amundsen, Norwegian explorer, was a pipe smoker. And I wonder if these guys, when they were out on their explorations of the far-off reaches, I wonder if part of the reason that they became pipe smokers was because you could take the pipe with you, you carry your tobacco, have your pipe, and you didn't have to really require a whole bunch of tools. Uh, the pipe also being very portable and uh, simple to, you know, after after a long day on the hike or out exploring, you can sit down at a campfire with your pipe. Uh, you want to talk about one of the great explorers, Buzz Aldrin, American astronaut, was a pipe smoker. I would imagine getting ready for a space flight, though, he'd uh, back off the smoking for a little bit. But Buzz Aldrin, again, another explorer that fits into that list of pipe smokers. One of the other guys that was kind of behind the scenes that surprised me that he was a pipe smoker was Bennett Cerf. And if the name doesn't jump out at you, he was the founder of the Random House Publishing Group. Uh, launched a lot of writing careers, including fellow pipe smoker uh, Theodore Seuss, better known as uh, Dr. Seuss, William Faulkner, uh, Eugene O'Neill, James Mitchell. I mean, brought a lot of talent to the forefront. And Bennett Cerf a pipe smoker, uh, family was involved in the tobacco business going back as well. Some of the greatest movie directors of the early part of the 19th century, or the 20th century, Cecil B. DeMille, Frank Capra, John Ford, all pipe smokers. So here's what I want you to think about. Were these people great because they smoked a pipe? Or because they were great, did that lend them towards the pipe? third part of that question really is, is during the times when they were growing up, pipe smoking was much more prevalent, pipe smoking was much more popular, therefore would they have switched to the more popular trends of the day? Uh, the one thing that I can say about most pipe smokers in particular is we tend to be more of the uh, deep thinker creative types, we tend to be people that appreciate the written word or the time of solitude with the written word, we uh, tend to be able to focus in deeper on things. And even when it comes to the simple thing is music, when you listen to a piece of music and you're smoking your pipe, it helps you really kind of narrow into what you're listening to on the music and kind of blinds you of all those distractions. So my thought process is these people were great, Smoking the pipe helped them become even greater, and all of us that uh, smoke pipes were probably uh, pretty good at what we do, although uh, some of us uh, on the sales side of it may not be the best, but we do look forward to getting up every day and playing with our pipes, and sometimes even I get lost in the pipe instead of paying attention to what I'm doing when I'm working, so I have to kind of back away from the pipe a little bit during the middle of the day. Anyway, love to hear your thoughts. Got any ideas, uh, got any comments on that, post them in the forums. We'll uh, check them out, talk about them in a future episode. All right, uh, speaking of American characters, in uh, just a minute, Al Franklin will be on the phone with me. The year was 1849. Zachary Taylor was sworn in as the 12th president of the United States. The U.S. flag remained fixed at 30 stars. Edgar Allan Poe was found dead in Baltimore. Congressman Abraham Lincoln patented a buoying device, the only patent ever filed by a future president. 
William Bond was the first person to photograph the moon through a telescope. And gold was discovered in far-off California. And in that same year, also in California, Henry Sutliff founded his small tobacco company in San Francisco, founded on the principles of giving the public superior tobacco products for those with very discriminating tastes. Now, 165 years later, that tradition continues. Sutliff Tobacco Company has been setting the standard for pipe tobacco ever since. Take a quiz on our website to have the perfect blend suggestion for your tastes. Or just browse around to explore all of the wide variety of fine products America's oldest pipe tobacco company has to offer. Lots of things have changed since 1849, but Sutliff Tobacco Company's commitment to making the finest pipe tobacco on earth has not. Visit sutliff-tobacco.com for information on where you can find all of your favorite blends, from the sweetest aromatics to the richest English mixtures. There's nothing quite like fishing at dawn or smoking my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com. Hi, this is Kevin Godby, and you're listening to the Pipes Magazine Radio Show. We are back on the Pipes Magazine Radio Show, and on the phone with me is a pipe collector, hobbyist, adventurer. I don't know what else to call you, but Al Franklin from Nashville, Tennessee. Al, how are you? Doing just fine. All right, so tell tell everybody a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where are you from? All well, uh, I started out life. I was just trapped in a woman's body. Then I was born. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, but I grew up in Gallatin, Tennessee, which is where I live now, just just outside of Nashville. And uh, lived here off and on most of my life. When did you start smoking a pipe? Probably around 1965. I was a uh, uh, sophomore in college. And what got you started with a pipe? Uh, my father was a pipe smoker. I just put it off a long time. <laughs> Finally decided, well, it's a lot cheaper. I was trying to, I was smoking cigarettes some, and that was, I figured out right quick that was a nervous habit. So I wanted something that would relax me a little more. So I started smoking a pipe. And like most idiots, I started smoking cherry blend because the, the pretty girls like the smell of it. But my <laughs> tongue clued <laughs> me in really quick that that's not the thing to smoke. So I moved on to other blends. Uh, do you remember the first pipe you smoked? Yes. It was a. Uh, Fabinelli, uh, Canadian smoked it. it. Was a great pipe. Somebody, I think, somebody stole it because they were they wanted to smoke dope out of it or something. Uh, what were That's you? July. What were you going to college for? Uh, either that or join the army. Oh, you mean studying? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was studying engineering. I was on a football scholarship, and uh, both lasted about two years. Uh, then I was I was working during the summer back before you could get a real honest to god. Uh, any kind of a deferment. And uh, so they drafted me right about the time I was supposed to report for fall practice. <laughs> so did you actually, so, did you go over to Vietnam? Oh, yeah. Actually, I got shuffled around a little bit, put into a uh, an oddball unit. It was part, part of a, uh, a program called Operation Phoenix. So I ended up spending about two and a half years in instead of the regular two years for a draftee. But I survived all that. They hung medals all over me and then just gave me two different DD-214s and told me none of that other stuff happened. <laughs> <laughs> and and if, you were to, if you were to talk about that stuff that happened, would you have to kill me? Oh, no, 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 no way. It's something that if you look, in, if you look on the Internet, they'll talk about Operation Phoenix and all that, but they'll tell you a bunch of stuff about it that I don't remember. They said it was really unsuccessful and everything, but... Uh, uh, I thought we did pretty well. It was pretty much canceled after about a year or so, I think. But uh, I think it was the other parts of it that were becoming a bit bloodthirsty. So our part, although just as bloodthirsty, was at least efficient. Uh, when you were overseas, did you take a pipe with you? Um, I think, I, yeah, I did. And uh, didn't smoke as much because it was very limiting what you could buy in the PX as far as pipe tobacco. Uh, it just wasn't much to smoke over there. Nothing I like. Uh, so I would wait for somebody to get something from home and bum a little off them. 
So you get you get back from Vietnam. Then what did what did you do? I went back to college, got my degree, and uh, immediately discovered that they weren't hiring any white guys that, that century. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, one thing I've always liked about you, and I've and I've known you for I don't know fourteen years or so, is that you you tend to you tend to sugarcoat things. Uh, yes, it was wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> What? I kept getting told I was overqualified for things I didn't know anything about, I mean, which was really amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to feel like the people they did are knew less than I did, which was really befuddling. <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is hard to figure. So I guess what I'm trying to get to is I know, um, when did the motorcycle racing start? Actually, this started about 1962. Uh was... A friend of my mother's was uh, uh, a Mrs. Nicholas, and she and her husband, her husband actually was a symphony uh, violin player, played with the Nashville Symphony. And uh, he and my he and my father got along great, which made no sense. My father was a engineer with uh, Corps of Engineers, and uh, we used to go over to their house. And their son Jody raced bikes, so I would go off with them on the weekends. And pretty soon, I was we weren't going off; we were just racing motorcycles. We had a place to practice. His father and his mother asked uh, my parents if I could go to Florida with him during uh, Daytona back in 62. So I went, showed up, and uh, they were having the junior race. And uh, uh, Jody and, uh, oh, Bill, I can't remember his last I forget a lot of names right now, came over and said, you need to have some leathers on. And I said, uh, why? And he said, well, you're going to run in this race. I go, I've never run a race in my life. He said, well, it'll be your first. So they stuck me in the race. And I finished sixth <laughs> <laughs> on a bike they didn't think would finish the race. It was um, 350 BSA Gold Star. Uh, and um, I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. I just figured I was supposed to be in front or something. So I was making passes in places you weren't supposed to pass. Found that out later and was lucky <laughs> I lived through it. So it was about a year before my parents figured out that I was racing motorcycles on the weekends. <laughs> And how long did you actually race motorcycles for? Oh, gosh, off and on. I mean, almost solid for from 62 to about, I guess, around 73 or 4. Then uh, I was racing in Europe mostly. I raced around the U.S. some. And um, actually, I went to Europe to race on a, uh, on a speedway team, went to England. And uh, I was one of the guys that was at least the number one rider on the team, Guy named Ivan Majors was, uh, he was the number one speedway racer in the world. And so he recruited me because he came over here to show us how to do it, and I beat him three out of five times. So he decided maybe I should be on his team. And uh, so I did that rather than uh, trying to use my college degree. I remember my father asking me about that. He says, when are you going to use that degree? And I said, what can I make? He said, oh, you might make about 10000 a year. I said, really? He goes, yeah. He said, well. What are you making over there? And I said, I made 140000 last year. And he says, why don't you uh, why don't you find a job for me doing that? So I <laughs> he said, but what's your social life like? And I said, well, I'm getting more ass in a toilet seat. He said, don't tell your mother you said that. <laughs> 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 and it was. It was like being a rock star. <laughs> I, I kind of liked it. What was your favorite, but, uh, what was your favorite bike okay. to ride back then? Well, uh I raced mostly small bikes, and during those years in Europe when I was racing, I raced, uh, I was actually a, a factory, not Grand Prix level racer, but what they called a club racer, where they had some sponsorship, they, and I was racing for Harley, although it was an air mock, and I really liked racing small singles, uh, four-stroke singles, I really enjoyed it. I didn't really care for the big bikes, just because it was, I don't think I could handle the speed that much on a motorcycle, I couldn't a car. But I just couldn't really – I was where I needed to be class-wise. I could run in that and be competitive. Had I moved up a class, I would have outweighed everybody 30 pounds and would not have been competitive at all because I just didn't ride that fast. But I had fun. I was still scaring myself. Um, I think mostly I raced all those years. I didn't quit racing until 92, uh, although I didn't race consistently all the way through. Um I finally came to the realization that I really wasn't so much enamored with racing as I was addicted to adrenaline. I think that's pretty much it. 
did you have a favorite course that you raced on? Uh, in the States, um, I had two or three favorites. There was one up around uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan I liked a lot. I can't remember the name of it. I'm bad with names. I'm awful with names. I think my brain is going away quickly. But um, I liked that course. I liked uh, I liked Road Atlanta. Road Atlanta was uh, pretty much fun, especially after they passed it up. Um, other races, it was. I had places I I, I really hated. One was um, a place up in uh, West Virginia. It had mostly raced cars there, and they poured and the Highway Patrol used it for driver testing. So what they would do was they pour glycol in the corners or antifreeze to make it slippery so they'd learn to uh, control a vehicle in a slide. Well, that's great, but if you go up there the next weekend and uh, there's still glycol on the corners and you're on a motorcycle, that's not a lot of fun. <laughs> Plus it had rain grooves, which made it even worse. So, so I hated that place. <laughs> so I guess that begs the question, did you have any really bad accidents on a bike? Uh, I only got killed two or three times. Maybe, about two, I guess. I landed on my head several times, got a few concussions. Uh, my last was in a little place in Alabama, down near uh, Talladega, Alabama. It's called the Grand Prix course, which is uh, it's three or four miles from the big car track. And there was a practice day. And I think I, I think I hit the ground at about 100. <laughs> that was my last race. I bunged up a bunch of ribs and uh, cracked an arm and cracked a thumb, got a real nasty concussion, and uh, decided that on that I didn't bounce as well as I used to. So I kind of got out of that. Now, the the closest was, I've come to ever riding a motorcycle was I actually thought about going out and buying a, you know, buying body armor and a helmet. Uh, what kind well, of those things are handy if you don't live in a good neighborhood. <laughs> Thanks. Um, <laughs> What kind of safety gear were you wearing back in the in the sixties and seventies? Just leathers and a helmet, gloves, maybe some and some boots. You know, we weren't racing in tennis shoes or anything. Pretty much what uh, guys were still wearing in the early nineties. Uh, that's changed quite a bit with the leathers and the armor, and they got the neck hump and they got a lot better helmets than they had back when I started. When I started, guys were wearing football helmets for crying out loud. Some of them. And when you had a full-face helmet, it had some little bitty tiny hole for your eyes. You couldn't see anything to the sides. But, uh, you know, the thing is, I said, do you use a helmet? Geez, I hope not. Because if you used it, that means your, your head got hit the pavement somewhere. So that would explain why you wanted to smoke a pipe, because you needed something to calm down after all that. Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't. Yeah, I was. You know, I, I threw up before every race I was ever in, and it took me an hour to to be able to talk to somebody at a normal speed. I mean, you just get, I get tore all up. I just, I'd be so into it. I'd have tunnel vision. Uh, I didn't see much. And when I got through the race, I was still pumped full of adrenaline and therefore still, you know, when that goes away, the first thing that happens is you get kind of sleepy. So people say, how do you take a nap after a race? I said, geez, I'm worn out. Uh, and the next day you're sore. Just because you're so wound up during the race. Adrenaline has a way of doing that. We're going to take a break right here. When we come back, we'll talk about the uh, we'll talk about the saner half of your career. So we'll be back in just a minute. The Carolinas and the tobacco tradition have been woven together generation after generation. From the Blue Ridge Mountains to the coastal low country, it's an integral part of our culture and heritage, building our beautiful tapestry. Cornell and Deal is proud to blend our pipe tobaccos in the Carolinas. Our history with tobacco dates back to the mid-1800s, and in that time we've perfected a variety of blends. The Carolinas have given us the perfect backdrop to do just that. Whether you're a fan of the rich Virginias, bold Latakias, spicy Periques, or unique aromatics, We've got a tobacco that's just right for your discerning taste buds. At Cornell and Deal, we live all things pipe tobacco. Blending it, smoking it, and enjoying the company of those who share our excitement. Tobacco, it's what we do. Stop by CornellandDeal.com. 
I wish I had a genie who could make it easy to order pipes and tobaccos online. You don't need a genie, sir. Visit fournoggins.com. They stock all your favorite pipes and tobaccos, and every order gets fast personal attention. Orders are packed carefully and shipped quickly by priority mail. Fournoggins.com. Fournoggins.com. I can still see you, you know. A bit rusty, sir. Fournoggins.com. This is Internet Radio. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show with Al Franklin. Al, you so when did the when did the less insane time in your life come in after uh, after all the motorcycle racing? Well, like I said, I raced motorcycles all the way up to ninety two. Although I had a break from about eighty two to eighty eight because of uh, job commitments elsewhere. I was working for the government. And, uh, geez, I was in Central America. Actually, it was the same guy I had worked for in Vietnam. And he had this great idea that I needed to go to uh, Honduras during uh, the 80s for six years. And uh, I was in Donnelly, Honduras, working for the, uh, I believe it was called the World Tobacco Institute. Donnelly's a big cigar center. Yeah. And and it was also a place that the, the cartels wanted very badly as a distribution point. And there were no drugs in that town. And uh, the guy who ran the town, pretty much the whole area, was a fellow named Nestor Placencia, who's really big in the cigar tobacco and cigar business. Yeah. So uh, we, he didn't really want to deal with the federal government, but he would deal with an individual. He certainly didn't like the, he didn't like the CIA. He didn't like, uh, especially the State Department, and. Uh, but he did like my old commanding officer, a fellow named Joe Zumo. Uh, Joe recommended that maybe I should try to see how I got along with him. We got along fine. So he just had me move into the uh, the pool house out behind his house, and that's where I lived for six years. And you were there and, simply uh, to uh, taste test cigars? No. I never I didn't smoke cigars the whole time I was there, but I never didn't have anything to do with tobacco. <laughs> I was there working for the Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA. And that was during the time when there was a little, uh, or a lot of civil unrest in the area? Well, mostly in Nicaragua. In that part of Honduras where I was, there was no civil unrest. If there was civil unrest, it was over in probably the capital city, which was on the other side of the mountains, closer to the west coast, or central Honduras, I should say. I was over in pretty much eastern Honduras, not that far from the Nicaraguan border. And uh, Daniel Ortega was uh, apparently someone who didn't like me a lot, although I never met the man. I think somebody did something really awful to him, and I got blamed for it, and I knew nothing about it. It was probably the State Department. And uh, I got blamed for it because they didn't want to take credit for it. Um, I didn't do it, but I got blamed for it. So it was a hit on me the whole time. <laughs> yeah, most people just most people really don't like you until after they've met you, so he just... Took a shortcut. But he's the only one ever actually put out a hit on me, though. They tried. It just they kept missing. So I was happy with that. It's so, a good good result for me. So you get back and, from there and you go back into motorcycle racing again. Well, I got back and I got into vintage motorcycle racing, and uh, while I was living in Kansas City, I went, came back, went to work in Kansas City, doing as a technical writer, which was what I was doing before I went over there, and. Uh, uh, got back into vintage racing, had a good time. I did, I think I won one national championship. That was my, <clears throat> my next to last year, and uh, I had a good time. So, and then you, and then after that is when you started the the more relaxing part of just writing. Yeah, I started the writing thing about ninety four or five, right in there. I was writing for it's a European publishing group. They own like five motorcycle magazines. They own uh, Motorcyclismo Spain, Motorcyclismo Italy. They own Motorrad Germany. And there's a couple more scattered around. I think one of them was French. Makes it hard to write when you have both the French and the Germans. It kills off most of my humor. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I did mention one time that something was about as likely as a French bathhouse. And, of course, they had to edit that and change it around a lot. <laughs> but um, 
other than that, it went well. Mostly I wrote about old people or people who used to be in racing, uh, riders, uh, team managers, people like that, tuners. And uh, I had a great time doing it, but we finally just ran out of people. I mean, we're getting too modern. And get, the, the old guys when I left were pretty much guys that were fairly new, uh, you know, till I was on up. I was good up to about 82. After that, I, I didn't know much. And all along, you've been uh, you've been smoking pipes and and collecting pipes. And, well, pretty much. I didn't really get heavy into collecting till probably the late eighties. I started getting a lot more interested in older pipes. Or let me take that back. I uh, got interested in collecting pipes in the early eighties, but I didn't get to do it for long because I got sent off to Central America. Not that there were no pipes down there. They were just all handmade pieces of something. <laughs> Their local pipe makers didn't make very good pipes. And primarily, it was just a lot easier to get a cigar. Yeah. And, you know, you could go get a handful of cigars. They felt like it. And since I was sort of the G-man in the area, they would just make sure I had plenty of cigars. Although Nestor did build me a, a pipe-smoking chair and table. It was quite an attractive affair. He told me I should go back down there. It's been sitting empty ever since I left, but uh, the people who issue passports won't give me one, and if I did get one, they wouldn't let me go anywhere near Central America. <laughs> so <laughs> so now that you're now, stuck I, here, what? <laughs> which is really bad. I own some land in Costa Rica. I haven't seen it since 78. <laughs> I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. I understand that uh, a, uh, uh, a government agency, not to be named since I don't know who did it, has remodeled the building on my property completely. <laughs> and they've used it, uh, who knows what for. Uh, but I've been told that, you know, anytime I want to go down there, I can go. I just can't go with the passports. They're going to fly me in. But uh, my old commanding officer is still around. He keeps saying, things go to hell here. It was looked like a plane down there. <laughs> <laughs> So I said, I got a bag packed, Joe. Let me know. <laughs> yeah, and just leave your pipes. I know exactly where they are. I'll take care of them. No, I'm taking those. Oh, all right. Never mind. So, oh, Including the one I'm smoking right now, by the way, which is a dandy pipe. What do you... And it is. It's a Suryakapo, of all things. And it was, uh, according to... It's got an odd emblem in the, in the stem. It doesn't look like the, the current one, although it is that maroon color in the middle. It's got real thick walls the metal part. And Giancarlo told me he only made about 100 like that, and that was before he would quit making Maestro de Paglia. So he said this pipe was likely made in the late, real late 70s, maybe 1980 or so. I didn't get it till the 90s, but it's okay. When we first met, I think it was in uh, late 2000, 2001, and you were wearing yeah. a name tag with a uh, created name. Yes. And you your first name was Bolars, B-O-L-A-R-S, yeah, uh, and I refuse yeah, to understand your last name. So, uh, Middle initial, S, and last name, Bangovitz. Yeah. We left that L thing all together. Yeah. And the reason for the name tag was? I just needed something that people would look at, and I just didn't see... I think Ronnie B was doing a show. I think it was St. Louis or it might have been Kansas City. And he said, I got an, I'm having a name tag made up for you. What do you want to put on it? And I said, Oh, let's go with a made up name and make it sound like I know something about pipes. So we came up with the name Bo Lars for uh, Bonord, Lars, Lars Everson, then S. Bang. Uh, we know who they are. And then Ovitz, which would be, yes, Conovitz. And uh, they kind of cornered me at a, a show and said, what's with the name? And I said, oh, guys, it's just my name. If you don't want to use any part of it, just feel free to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so Lars got a laugh out of that. And, uh, yes, thought it was funny as hell. So we kind of went with it. <laughs> now, the focus of your uh, pipe enjoyment has been primarily Italian pipes? No. No, I've been through an Italian period or two. I've always liked uh, Costello's. Uh, I don't have many others. I have a few Escortes. Uh, not many. But 
early on, I mean, in the 90s, late 90s, actually, I started getting into Danish pipes. And um, I guess at one time I had about three Conovices and three S Bangs and uh, two of, uh, but I had, you know, I had a very few English pipes. I used to be kind of into English pipes and I uh, kind of got away from them except for old barlings and then one, my best one got stolen. So uh, somebody broke into my truck and took a pipe bag, uh, one of those buffalo high pipe bags that had a Conovitz, two bangs, and a, and a double X uh, fossil uh, barley, along with the bag, of course, with a DuPont lighter in it. And uh, they did catch up to the guy that took it, but he'd already dumped it and didn't know where it went. And But he's still in prison, so I'm happy for him. I think his parents tried to buy me out of that. And I told him I needed a new truck and about 20 grand. So... They decided they couldn't pay that. It would be unfair. And I said, well, then, as far as I'm concerned, your son can go to prison. So that was the end of that story. He went to prison. He's still there. Grand larceny. Can you describe the, can you describe the smoking difference between some of the great Danish names and some of the, the great Italian names? I, uh, I thought the, 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 the high-end Danes and the later bangs the early bangs I, I didn't really care for much uh the later bangs uh i like quite a bit i'm talking about late 90s i haven't been able to afford a new one of those anytime since the uh, the conovitzes were especially great smokers uh, i never had a bolars uh i never had a bow or a lars excuse me uh just couldn't afford them <laughs> just plain old couldn't do it although uh lars keeps ragging me. So when are you going to buy a pipe from me? I said, I can't even afford your sandblast, which is what I prefer, but I just can't afford it. And I couldn't. I needed this last. But uh, if I ever get to where I could afford it, maybe I'd want to get one of those. Right now, my main focus is on American carvers. I rarely buy an Italian anymore unless I pick up a, uh, a fairly inexpensive uh, Castello. The Castellos, smoking properties, when they're great, they're absolutely phenomenal. And when they're not, they're below average. Is there a way that I, as a smoker, can determine which Costello is going to be great and which one's going to be below average? Or do you just have to pick them up and smoke them? I, I think you just have to smoke them. Now, you, you need to check uh, the Costello. Because some of them aren't drilled so hot. And uh, I don't know why, but some have a fairly large draft hole and some have a very small draft hole. I prefer the ones with a little bit larger. It's not huge. It's just a little larger. I prefer those. I think those smoke the best. I never owned. I have owned a smooth. I I don't have it anymore. But if it comes to Castellos, uh, everything I own is either Sea Rock or a national uh, natural virgin. I just don't see any reason to buy anything else because I'm prone to carrying pipes in the same pocket with my keys, and uh, I don't want to do that to a smooth pipe. So I don't have many smooth pipes. And I buy your, pipes for smoking only. And your pipe bag it's got not, stolen, so now you have to keep them in your pocket. No, no, I have another pipe bag. Oh, okay. I had that was the one that was a uh, held four pipes or something like that. The one I'm using now holds about eight. It's uh, uh, same kind. It's like buffalo hide. I've had it a while. And since uh, you since you've owned some of the classics like barlings and some of the older older italians are they in compare are they comparable in quality to what the american carvers are making now uh, i think the american carvers are uh capable of making pipes maybe not quite as pretty but certainly smoking quality uh they're right in there with the danes i trust them more I mean, I, I know I can pick up any Rad Davis. It's going to smoke with anything else I can pick up anywhere at any price. Same thing with, uh, I've had good luck with uh, uh, Kevin Arthur pipes. I like them fairly well. Uh, I don't always like every shape he makes. I don't like every shape anybody makes. But uh, I particularly like those two right now. I think there's some other ones. Uh, there's some local carvers from around here. I mean, Jody Davis, uh, uh Pete, um, Pete Prevost. Pete Prevost. Pete yeah. Prevost. Yeah, 
his pipes. I, I love to look at them. I've not smoked one. I, we keep talking back and forth like he's going to make me one. And I, we both mean it, and neither one of us ever gets around to it. Uh, one last question, then and, we'll start to wrap this up. You live in the Nashville area. There's a high concentration of pipe makers in Nashville. Do you run into them when you're out at smoke shops? Uh, rarely. I mean, you never see Jody. You don't see Pete much. I mean, Todd Johnson spends all his time in China now, or a lot of it. Um, uh, I don't see uh, Bruce Weaver that often, but when I do, we sit down and talk. Nice guy. I've had I've got two or three of his pipes. They smoke good. Uh, I see who else? Uh, uh, Steve Morissette every now and then. Nice guy. Like him. I got one of his pipes. I like it. So, you know. And I think there's some other guys around here who have made some pipes that just don't do it in as much as they should. Uh, one of the guys that was in our pipe club, Scott, I really do not remember his last name. Scott His Holtzman. wife works at the VA. Uh, Holtzman? Yeah. It is? Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe it is his last name. Yeah. He makes a phenomenal pipe. Uh, I think he spends too much time on a pipe. I know Ronnie B's got one or two that are just out of this world. Yeah. Uh, I mean, sandblast. It looks like it was. It, it looks like it was actually carved that way, but it's not. It's a sandblast. Uh, he chased those grains out to the end of the earth. It almost is. I mean, it's right in there with uh, some of the other, you know, carved blasters in the world. It's it's beautiful, but he uh, he's had some kind of medical problems where he just can't carve. I wish he would. And um, so there's it, other ones coming along that tried it here and there. But, you know, I did an apprenticeship, but that was back in the 70s when I was racing motorcycles. I was living in Germany at the time, racing with a guy who was a world champion, uh, Tony Mang, who was a World 250 champ. His father was Horst Mang, who never signed a pipe in his life. But he made pipes for some high-end pipe makers, uh, pipe, excuse me, high-end pipe shops where they wanted their name on. Uh, he knew some of the guys around, like uh, he knew uh, Sixton Everson, he knew uh, uh, Emil Konovitz, he knew all those guys, because they were all kind of splitting up the briar they were getting, and uh, Forrest had a really good in, in as far as buying uh, Corsican briar, which is what he used. So I did uh, a few months of an apprenticeship with him, I never really started it back up, because by the time I got home... Um, I had money in the bank, but I was so busy, I just didn't have time to even get started and didn't have a place to do it. I mean, you don't even have a garage, you're living in an apartment, how are you going to make pipes? Uh, unless you build your own shop. So I did. But I had a few that were sold. They were around. I know uh, Yes has two of my pipes, and I think Lars has two of my pipes. They didn't get them from me, they got them from Emil. Um, they say Alf on them, and you'll never see one as long as you live. I, I don't even have them. <laughs> but uh, I keep threatening to go over and steal one of their pipes just so I can have one of my pipes. They're nothing fancy. Uh, they're sandblast. They're um, black. They smell good. They're not pretty. <laughs> I didn't really get to do it that long. And uh, the apprenticeship I did basically was go buy a two by four. I'm gonna cut it into angles, and you're gonna build. You're gonna make pipes with a file. And then I got through with all that, and he moved me over to oak or something like it. Then, after that, he actually gave me a piece of briar, let me make a pipe with nothing but a file. Oh, he would drill it. Then I got to actually start drilling some and and using some power equipment, and I figured out it was a lot better to make one with a sanding disc than it was with a uh, file. <laughs> Your arm didn't fall off. Oh, man. I mean, the first one I made, I... I had a briar. I worked on it for two weeks, handed it to him, and he says, he says, is that it? And I said, yeah, I think I got it. And he goes, yeah, I believe you will in another four or five days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so back to my corner. <laughs> it Al was definitely Wallen. an 85%er. <laughs> we'll wrap this up with the fast five final questions. No right answer, no wrong answer, just whatever comes to your mind. Are you ready? I, I think so. All right, here we go. What's your favorite pipe? Right now is a Red Davis. What's your favorite tobacco? I would say Golden Sliced. 
What's your favorite drink? I like, uh, I've been drinking some Sweet Lucy. It's uh, Pritchard's Sweet Lucy. Good stuff. And when you have time to relax, is it a book, a movie, or music? Uh, book. And the final question, any favorite pipe smoking memory in particular? Nothing that really stands out. I've got a bunch of them, but there's nothing jumps out. Really. Al, we appreciate your time, and you have no website because you are the lowest tech person whatsoever. However, if anybody happens to run into a guy with a name tag Bolars at the Chicago Pipe Show, they'll know exactly who you are. I'll dig it up and wear it on purpose. Appreciate your time. <laughs> just so you, just so they'll recognize me. <laughs> Last year, when they were doing the article, when they were doing the speech on nicotine in the tent, and he asked. Uh, why do people smoke after sex? I'm the guy that yelled friction. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. <laughs> On that note, we'll be back with the show in just a minute. I'm Mark from Ohio, and I've tried so many tobaccos, but I just still can't find something that is just magical, a tobacco that I can fall in love with. I mean, I've tried reading reviews online and participating in forum discussions only to get burned. When I was about to give up, I discovered this amazing matching system for finding my perfect blend at SutliftTobacco.com. That's how I found my perfect blend, and I just love it. Finding the right tobacco doesn't have to be hard. There are lots of tobaccos waiting for you to fall in love with them. Finding that special tobacco shouldn't be left up to chance. Experience the magic of compatibility with our patented Perfect Match system. Try it at SutlifeTobacco.com. Go to SutlifeTobacco.com right now and find your perfect blend. There's nothing quite like hunting at dawn or smoking my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com. Welcome back, and uh, Al, or as I call him regularly, Bolars, um, was uh, fairly restrained for what for some of the conversations I've had with him one-on-one. -on -one. So if you get a chance, run, say hi to Al at the uh, Chicago Pipe Show. He's uh, an American original. All right, for music, I thought we would uh, find another pipe-smoking musician, and Dizzy Gillespie came up. Well, I did a little bit of digging around, and I found one of uh, one of these pieces that's just Dizzy doing what uh, Dizzy could do. This is him with his quartet. The song is called Bebop, and it's uh, in uh, honor of Dizzy's fingers. Thank you. 
John Dizzy Gillespie, a South Carolina native, uh, and uh, all I can say is wow, and I wish I would have gotten a chance to see him play live, but never got a chance to see him. You got mail. You got mail. You got mail. We'll do a quick mailbag here, and then update on the JDRF auctions, and then I've decided to do the rant, so we'll do the rant at the end of the show. Uh, Riff Raff wrote, let's see, uh... Another great show. Enjoyed it on my morning commute with a great bowl of Chelsea morning. It's interesting to note that a few of the pipe makers have stated that making billiards until you get them right is the way to start making pipes. I've noticed that trend with billiards, and then I've also heard the same comment in the past with bulldogs. Forum member Mother Nature Will Eat Us All for Breakfast. Yes, seriously, that is the forum member's name. And uh, J.H. Hicks both liked how uh, Bruce Weaver caught the bug on pipe making from uh, from going to the Chicago workshop. J.H. Hicks also wanted to go on and say that uh, when Bruce mentioned that he has no competitors, that statement just floored him. Then he explained why, and I couldn't help but smile. That is really kind of the sense around the community. Yeah, there's some competition and stuff like that, but there really are no competitors when it comes to those guys. Uh, J.H. Hicks also enjoyed the uh, part on uh, basket pipes or private labeled stuff because he's got one he's trying to figure out. Speaking of private label pipes, John Seiler brought up one that I was a little amiss and didn't mention. Astley's, the London shop. Great pipes. Uh, Collectible, too. And I've seen values go up and down. It depends on the piece itself, but the Astley's of London shop in fact, I had an Astley's pipe that Bill Taylor said that he had made. Uh, Dino in Chicago also has a whole bunch of uh, private label pipes, in particular some Savinelli's from Ewan Reese, and then there's uh, the old uh, Gift and Tobacco Emporium where he bought about 24 pipes over the years. Dino, can't wait to see you on uh, Friday evening, May 2nd, at the Chicago Pipe Show. Don't forget the 9 p.m. PipesMagazine.com forum in the smoking tent, and I believe we can now add Fred Brown to that list of people going to be on the panel. Uh, Bent Mike enjoyed the show very much and really liked Bruce Weaver's interview. Uh, Fuel Pump, better known as Brian, so I gotta like the name. Uh, says that he enjoyed the part on private label pipes. I'm now cruising the web looking at some of these pipes. I hope to pick up more ideas at the Chicago Pipe Show. Uh, this week's show has continued to build anticipation for the upcoming pipe shows. You are doing a great job of keeping the excitement building. And make sure you keep your funds building because it's time to get ready for pipe shows. All right, speaking of funds, I am truly happy and thrilled with how the most recent auctions for the JDRF, remember the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, which spends all of its money, or most of its money, about 82% of money goes directly to finding a cure and finding treatments for type 1 diabetics like my daughter. And remember, being a type 1 diabetic, uh, being a type 1 diabetic means that she has to test her blood sugar six to eight times a day, give herself shots of insulin four, five, six times a day, sometimes more, sometimes less, just depends on the day. Long-term effects for type 1 diabetics, uh, eyesight problems, circulation problems, kidney, liver issues, uh, any, any of the extremities. So diabetics get checked out by podiatrist regularly she goes to the eye doctor regularly to keep keep an eye out for that any of these circulation issues the pipes that ended or the pipe that ended last week was the s-bang donated by rick newcomb just over 700 dollars, and it went to my friend peter field thank you very much peter and the absolutely gorgeous cosmic folklore Sterling Silver Tamper, made by Michael Johnson, the one that I wanted, went way over my budget at $159.99. Somebody's got a great tamper out there. Uh, currently, I believe we're over $1,700 in funds raised through direct donations and sales on uh, Pipe Studs eBay store. 
right now, ending this weekend, is another one of Michael Johnson's Cosmic Folklore Studio Gorgeous Handmade Silver Tampers. This one's got a Andamuka Opal in the center of it. I had it in my hands. It's gorgeous. I'll be bidding on it. Ed Green donated a Michael Novak freehand, unsmoked, brand new in the box. That's ending on Sunday. And also ending on Sunday, a Savinelli Spring pipe donated by Savinelli and uh, SmokingPipes.com. Those are all ending on Sunday. Plus, coming up, starting on Saturday, the Ultimate Corn Cob Pipe. Donated by Ricardo Santia, the pipe maker from Windsor, Ontario, Canada. Which, by the way, it was two Canadian chemists, PhDs, that uh, discovered the current modern-day insulin that is what my daughter uses to keep her alive every day. So we're always thankful to the Canadians. But Ricardo donated a gorgeous, long, bamboo-shanked, ultimate corncob pipe of his that will be going up on Steve Fallon's Pipe Stud eBay store for live auction with every bit of it going directly to JDRF. So I ask you, go to Steve Fallon's Pipe Stud eBay store, bid on those items, take a look around his store. I appreciate everything that uh, Steve has done. It's cost him. Keep in mind, every dime we raise on eBay, he's probably paid a penny of the fees and shipping and all that, so... Appreciate what Steve has done. Please make sure and stop by his store. Bid on one of the pipes that are ending this weekend. Bid on the Ultimate Corn Cob Pipe coming up on uh, Saturday. All right. We're at $1,600, $1,700 now. I'd love to get us over $2,200, $2,300. If you've got any questions, links are all down below on the show page. Let us know. Rant time is coming up next. Cup of Joe's, a name you know, a name that you trust for all your tobacco needs. Exclusive pipes, pipe tobacco, accessories, pipe stands, and so much more. Cup of Joe's is the one place you can go and take care of every single one of your tobacco purchases. Fast shipping, friendly, professional service. One site, cupofjoes.com. And coming soon, their new line of smoking man pipes, cupofjoes.com. Quality products and extraordinary prices. Italians have always been known for their aesthetic passion. It's their birthright, their legacy. And just like Savinelli, it continues to grow and evolve. It is ever-changing. Milan, 1876. Achilles Savinelli set out to change the way the world viewed smoking pipes, opening one of the world's first specialist tobacco shops. From one small storefront to a factory that delivered handmade pipes all over the world, the legacy he forged became one filled with success and prestige. Achilles' dream is carried on today by his family, who continues the Savinelli legacy. Each year, Savinelli debuts a series of new, forward-thinking designs comprised of quality-crafted pipes shaped from some of the best briar in the world. Behind every beautiful object, there's a story. Start your own chapter. Visit your local tobacconist or premium online dealer today. This is Internet Radio. Cowboy. Cowboy. I know you all are familiar with the problems we've had in the house since January with the water damage and how they took the roof, out, uh, the ceiling out of the kitchen and all the floors out. And Anyway, the work has started on replacing it and rebuilding it finally, 13 weeks later. Well, here's what happens. Last Friday, they uh, bring in one of those pods or pack rats. It's a little portable storage container that they drop in your driveway and we needed it because they finally realized that you know what we don't have any room in the house to put our kitchen living room dining room and upstairs bathroom stuff in there's no more room to move stuff so they needed this pack rat thing to be put on the driveway so that they had some place to store our furniture while they're in drywalling painting and putting the house back together again now on friday the pack rat thing is delivered it comes on the back of this big truck. 
And the big truck's got this little crane arm that grabs it on both sides, lifts it up, rotates it or rolls it back out, and it's all hooked on with these arms, and the guy's driving it and controlling it, and he's tilting it back and forth and getting it angled correctly on the driveway without moving the truck. He's doing this just with the lift crane that's on the back of it for this pack rat. Now, our driveway's got a bit of a slant to it. When I mean a bit of a slant, it's a it's a bit of a slant. It's enough slant that if our cars are low on gas, it's kind of tough to get them started. So, it's got a slant to it. In order to try to keep the pack rat as level as possible, and this is a modern container thing full of, you know, the lift gate, or the lift arm is, you can tilt it, swing it, rotate it, roll it back and forth. What does he do in order to level the pod as much as possible it goes into the back of the truck and opens up a little storage container and in there is wood blocks wood blocks so we get this really modern thing that is leveled ba- using basic kindergarten technology of two by fours cut into different lengths to lift it up anyway you'd think they'd you know all that technology you'd think you could put some lifts on the front of the pod thing and just pop them right up and down but uh, one of these days I'll tell you all about the other fun parts of having an insurance claim done in your house and dealing with contractors and insurance companies but uh, until the until some other time when I decide to really unload on that I am happy to say that four weeks from now I will be in Chicago for the pipe show hope to see you all there On uh, April 12th, Saturday, April 12th, Raleigh, North Carolina, the Triangle Area Pipe Smokers Show, the TAP Show, I'll be there. Next week's show, 100% pre-recorded. I am off to the West Coast on uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I'll be in L.A. and Las Vegas. Going to pre-record the show because I'll be flying back Thursday night. Won't have a hotel room to do it in. So... Next week's show, I'll pre-recorded the week after that. I'll catch you up on not only the Raleigh show, but my trip to L.A. and Vegas. Follow me on Facebook. Leave us a feedback rating or review on iTunes. We do appreciate that. Any comments or questions, post them in the forums. Again, if you know a World War II veteran that smoked a pipe or smokes a pipe, I would love to talk to him. Email me at brian at pipesmagazine.com. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you to the Sutliff Tobacco Company. And until next time. Cares about the clouds when we're together. Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. Happy In tonight's show, the part of Kevin Godby was played by Nancy Pelosi.